thing. And, and so the testimony uh, of obedience to the Lord for the founder to go and do that there. And it's also a testimony of the Lord's grace that he's allowed this ministry to be successful. So I mentioned the founder and his name is Brian McDaniel. And I'll tell you a little bit about him now. But if you really want to hear the whole testimony of how the ministry started and a little bit more about him and a bunch of other stories along the way, you can check him out on the church YouTube channel. He came here the Thursday uh, before I left and, and talked. So you could watch that whole thing. I believe it's three parts. He, he was up here for quite a while. So there are a lot of stories to hear and to go through, but I'll spoil a little bit uh, of it now. So Brian went to Haiti 12 years ago, completely alone uh, with the vision for the ministry. And when I say alone, I mean alone. One of the first stories he told when he got up here was when he first landed in Haiti, he got in a taxi to go wherever he was going. And the guy goes, all right, who's your contact in the country? And he turns to the guy and he goes, you. So he was completely alone. Uh, He didn't speak any of the language. Uh, And so the Lord, again, through his grace, protected him and gave him an opportunity to buy a property there, the property that I stayed at, and he started his ministry. And from there, the Lord continued to bless his work. And I was fortunate enough to experience and reap some of the reward of that work. Um, So I'm not going to give you too much more today, but I do have much more to share. So next week at 930 during the Sunday school hour, Uh, I'll be here uh, sharing uh, everything I've experienced here. So I welcome you all to come and listen and ask any questions you might have. Um, So being there was incredible, and I'm looking forward to sharing it with all of you. Thanks so much, John. I do encourage you to come next Sunday, 930. We meet down in the fellowship room. And so we are going to continue in Nehemiah chapter 9. So if you'd like to turn there, you can, or you will see the scripture verse up on the board for a short time. Nehemiah chapter 9 is a covenant treaty that the people of Israel are making to God because they hadn't heard the word of God. They were they just came back from exile and they're in this situation where the temple is there. It's rebuilt. The walls are rebuilt. Ezra reads the word of God to them and the Levites read the word of God to them. They become convicted and then they want to do something for God. So they write this treaty making all sorts of promises. And as we look now with hindsight, we see that these promises failed. Um, And they were not trusting in the Lord from their heart. They were more trusting in their own works and in the things that they were going to make sure that they can do. And so in this treaty, it has a treaty structure, a covenantal treaty structure that many of the countries around this time used. And it has a couple of different sections. We've been in the historical prologue, and that basically means in a treaty, they reiterate everything that the person they're writing the treaty to has done for them. And they're, 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 they've, they've already went through all of that. And now what they're getting to is the blessings and the curses of the treaty. And in God's uh, word, we see this throughout in the book of Deuteronomy, which, is, uh, which means the second law. 
It's a treaty structure, and they go through all the blessings and curses. If you obey God, you'll be blessed. If you disobey God, he's going to discipline you, and they go back and forth. And that's sort of in the section that we're at right now. And so we're in Nehemiah chapter 9, verse 26. I'm going to read, pay close attention to this back and forth, the sinning, okay, and God's discipline, God's rescue, the sinning, and so forth and so on. So verse 26, but they became disobedient and rebelled against you, talking about their fathers and the people of Israel. And they cast your law behind their backs and killed your prophets who had admonished them so that they might return to you. And they committed great blasphemies. Verse 27, therefore, you delivered them into the hand of their oppressors who oppressed them. And when they cried to you in the time of their distress, you heard from heaven. And according to your great compassion, you gave them deliverers who delivered them from the hand of their oppressors. But as soon as they had rest, they did evil again before you. Therefore, you abandoned them to the hand of their enemies so that they ruled over them. When they cried to you again, you heard from heaven. And many times you rescued them according to your compassion and admonished them in order to turn them back to your law. Yet they acted arrogantly and did not listen to your commandments, but sinned against your ordinances, by which if a man observes, he shall live. And they turned a stubborn shoulder and stiffened their neck and would not listen. However, you bore with them many years and admonished them by your spirit through your prophets. Yet they would not give ear. Therefore, you gave them into the hand of the peoples of the land. Nevertheless, in your great compassion, you did not make an end of them or forsake them. For you are a gracious and compassionate God. Now, if you violate a traffic law, you're out driving and you're speeding or you make a wrong turn or you just carelessly drive, police officers are commanded to pull you over. This is all new information to you. They're able to issue you a ticket or they're able to issue you a warning. They're able to do this at their own discretion oftentimes, possibly for those offenders who have a clean driving record, or maybe you have one of those PBA shields in your front window, or you have a We Support Law Enforcement bumper sticker, or maybe just the officer just is in a good mood. It's not the end of the month. He doesn't need to have a certain amount of tickets in, wink, wink. In any case, a warning is given instead of the ticket. A warning is always better than the actual violation. However, regardless of who you know or what connections you have or what bumper stickers or whatever the case may be, repetitive warnings will always lead to discipline. Keep doing the same thing over and over and you are going to get a fine, a loss of license, community service, or even worse, for consistent repeat offenders. For most, this sort of correction wakes them up and causes them to stay in their lane and avoid further repercussions. They learn from these mistakes. 
In our passage today, like I said, we are merging from the historical overview to these blessings and curses of the covenant. We see God's repeated warnings, as I just read to you, his repeated admonitions. And we also see Israel's repeated violations. Now, I don't know about you, but I have been admonished by God many times in the past. The word admonished means warn. God sends me warnings when I start to go off the right road. I start to veer off. God will send me a warning. And oftentimes that warning is ignored. And then God sends a little bit of stiffer warning. And then ultimately, if I do not turn, it's discipline. Have you ever been admonished or warned by God for some sort of sin that you were choosing over obedience? Today, this is what we're going to look at. How God's loving, compassionate, and just character and his love for you demands both admonishment and discipline when you veer off of the road and start to disobey. Because of God's love, again, for his people, he will go to great extremes to help you in order to warn you. He's doing it so you, like the police officer gives you those warnings, you don't go off to permanent or long-term incarceration. That's what the law is given to do. It's given to keep us in check. Persistent sin always leads to admonishment from the Lord. And when they are ignored, it will lead to his faithful discipline. And we see this is how Israel persistently sinned in our passage today. Most of it is right there in verse 26. They cast God's law behind their backs. It's a picture of just saying, I don't want this. I don't want that. Going through the drawer, looking for the clothes, just throwing it behind your back. <clears throat> they rejected God's prophets, <clears throat> excuse me, who came to them in the name of God, tried to get them to repent and turn. They killed them. They committed great blasphemies. Instead of worshiping the God of heaven that they knew rescued them from Egypt, they worshiped the works of man's hands. They followed all the nations around them. They acted arrogantly. They acted arrogant because they were the people of God. We're, we're, We're the people of God. We're the God of of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. That's the God we serve. We're God's true people. We're the light of the world. So they got too lenient. It says they turned a stubborn shoulder with a stiff neck. This this analogy comes from the the ox. When they would would put a a yoke on an ox and he didn't want to go, so he would turn his shoulder this way and he had to be poked with the goads to straighten him out. He would stiffen his neck. I am not moving. I am staying right here. So God, his purpose of warning is always to turn us back. Excuse me. Once more. 
His admonishment isn't to scare us, to let you know that he's God and you better watch it. Or I'm going to squish you like a bug if you don't stop it. It's not what he does. It's not his character. That comes from a works-based mentality towards God. If I do really good things, God's going to bless me. I obey, therefore I'm blessed. And we know that it's, we're blessed, therefore we obey. <clears throat> when the people sin, God turns up the heat when they ignore the admonishment and he turns it up with discipline. And how did he do this with Israel in our text? Three ways. He gave them over to the hands of their oppressors, the people who wanted to do them wrong. He allowed them to get beat up a little bit, to become annoyed by these people. These people were the ones we were supposed to be ruling over God. Now they're ruling over us or they're trying to come and rule over us. God says, I'm giving you into their hands because you aren't listening. I'm warning you. All right, Lord, we repent. We repent. <clears throat> All right. No problem. I'm a God of grace and a God of love and a God of second chances. But then they sin again. And what does he do? He abandons them to their enemies. And what that means is it's obviously not a permanent abandonment because we see over and over he didn't forsake them. But he allows the enemies, he takes his ruling hand out of the situation and allows the enemy's ruling hand to go in and rule over them. And that is the most frustrating thing. Because when we sin, we are ultimately giving authority to that idol or to that sin. Taking the authority that we are to have as image bearers of God and giving it over to the sin instead. And then we become slaves. So we become in the hand of our enemies. They rule over us. And then finally, <clears throat> he throws them into exile. Giving them into the hand of the people is referring to when they went into exile. Now, what happened when they went into exile? Everything that was precious to them, everything that God gave them to say, I am your God, I am ruling over you, he wiped out. Took away the temple, took away the sacrifices, took away the priesthood, and even took away their land. Wiped out Jerusalem. The Babylonians and the Assyrians took over, and they were the rulers of the world when Israel was supposed to be. <clears throat> you want to act like them? Great, you can then be a part of them. And so this is the character of our God. Now I ask you again, are you struggling in this area with persistent sin? And if you are, are you responding to God's admonishment? Or are you giving, turning your shoulder and stiffening your neck? Ignoring it or acting like it's not there? <clears throat> I have a, a very stubborn American bulldog. Very stubborn. And we have a backyard that has a fence. And then there is a, a, a dog on the other side of the yard. And I don't know if you know American bulldogs, but they, they're just grumpy. They don't like people. They don't like other living things. And so when we would let my dog out, he would charge that fence full speed and he would ram the fence to try to get after that dog. And he would come in all bloody. And it was embarrassing to my neighbors because, you know, this dog hated anything over the fence. 
So we decided to get an electric fence, even though we have a wooden fence. And I set the electric fence about five feet off of the wooden fence. And I trained my dog that when he hears the beep, 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 you're going to get shocked if you don't, you got three seconds. And at first he listened. All right, I hear the beep. All right, I got a little shock. But do you know that that dog became accustomed to that shock that he would just walk right through it? And he would be barking and getting shocked. <laughs> True story. So what did I do? I went out and got another shock collar. One of the real heavy duty ones. And I put it around his neck in addition to that one. And that one really gave him a jolt. And do you know he got used to that as well? He would come in and he would have burn marks in his neck. But he was a stiff necked dog. He didn't learn. He didn't listen. It got to the point where our neighbor and I had to make a deal and we put a gigantic fence where he can't even see over to that side. And so God is a God of warning shots. He's a God of, not, I don't want to say electric collars because that just puts him in the wrong light, but he is faithful to give that warning shot. As you get to that place where you're going off the road a little bit, he fires those admonitions at you and they penetrate your conscience. Jesus says in John 16, and he, when he comes, meaning the Holy Spirit, will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. So one of God's warning shots is by giving you the Holy Spirit to poke at your conscience when you are being admonished by God. That's wrong. Stop doing it. I love you. This is not of me. And we know it. The Holy Spirit also does this through our Bible. Or the hearing of the word. Or the reading or the remembering of the word. It's like a song in our head that we can't get out of our head. I remember that song, Don't Worry, Be Happy. I can't even think of it because it will be in my head for a week. I'll get up and it's in my head. I'll go to sleep. It's in my head. I try singing other songs. It doesn't work. And that's like the Holy Spirit when we're in sin. That word just keeps, he keeps ringing like a song in our ear. No, no. Everywhere you look, you're seeing the admonition from God. But we block it out. Some of you oftentimes, you know, will say, wow, that, that sermon is just for me. Did you know about my life? Most pastors say that. And the reason is, is because when you teach through the word of God, the Holy Spirit meets people everywhere they're at. So one verse of scripture can be something to everyone different but effective. Psalm 19, 9 and 11, the judgments of the Lord are true. They are righteous altogether. Moreover, by them, your servant is warned. So we're warned by the word of God when it's preached, the word of God written in our heart, and from the people in our church that are overseeing you that preach the word, and certainly through your brothers and sisters in the Lord. The only thing more difficult than a warning from a friend about your sin is having to tell them about their sin. It's so difficult. And usually when somebody's in sin, they resist. They don't want to hear it. They justify. But as brothers and sisters in the Lord, it's our job 
to admonish each other when we see each other in willful sin. I don't mean you're going around and, you know, following people around going, hey, you know that uh, you're drinking coffee, huh? I was delivered from coffee, you know. I don't know about you, but as soon as I got delivered from coffee, I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about a dear brother and sister that you know is going in the wrong direction and you're ministering to them and ministering to them and you're talking to them and you just see the wall going up and up and up. Now, when we don't listen to the Lord's admonition, what happens is, is it causes us to go deeper into sin. It never causes us to get better by death hearing it and not listening to it. The more deeply we go into sin, the more the shield of the flesh goes up. See, not the shield of faith. What does the shield of faith do? It extinguishes all the arrows and all the darts from the enemy. But the shield of the flesh is a deflector. So God's word comes to you and your flesh goes and deflects it off. I'm okay. I'm good. The only problem is, is like a ricochet bullet that comes back. God's word never returns void. So it's going to accomplish the purpose that it goes out. So you have nowhere to go. We, are, we, we have nowhere to run from the word of God. And that ricochet will come back. And God's word, although in the beginning it won't land on your heart, when it comes back, it's going to hurt even more. Sin has a way of blinding us to God's admonishment. We, we, we say, you know, we don't look anymore. It's like the sun beating at us. And you say, oh, the sun is so big, nobody can escape from it. But I could take this little itty bitty water cap right here and block out the sun with it by just putting it close to my eye or a penny or a quarter. Something that small can block the sun when it's close enough. And the closer you get to sin, the more you go into sin, the more you are blocking the light of God's word coming in. Our smallest sinful desires clog the way of the Spirit of God from reaching our heart. And this is even for mature Christians. They know his word. They have his word in their heart. Their conscience gets convicted. But what they do is they spit out the medicine. Like the worst thing for me is when one of my children gets sick, and they're the younger ones, and I'm like, okay, what's wrong? I go through panic, you know. This one's not breathing right. This one's you know, got a fever and I get the medicine from the doctor and after all that, they won't take it. So I try to force it and it just comes back up and it becomes a mess. It doesn't go in. The antidote doesn't go in. And that's what exactly we we do. Even as mature Christians, we've actually gotten good at it. And that's like for me, as a, when, when God gives me something to preach, you can almost, if you come here enough, you know my pattern of preaching and you can sort of know when the application is coming and you know if it's a sermon about sin and all that, you start to put your shields up, right? And you say, well, so-and-so would be so perfect to hear this message right now. Man, if my husband were here, oh, my wife were here. If, my, if I could just had my friend come to this service, man, it would have been good. When you mean, All the while, God's talking to you. But we become good at deflecting the word. We're experienced with that. But God knows. He knows how to get around it. But he's patient. He's gracious. 
And he meets each of us in a different way. But know this, he will do his work to get you off of that track. <clears throat> Most of the time, when, I don't know about you, but when, in my darkest times, I have a hard time reading the Bible because everywhere all over the scripture, it convicts me. And oftentimes you have to beware of that. When you start to fall into sin, you'll notice you start to take only the really nice, comfy parts of Scripture that are comfortable and you're familiar with. We go to John 3, you know, Romans 8, Ephesians 1, the Psalms, whatever. And we steer clear of the verses like 1 Corinthians 6, 9 and Galatians 5, 21, which talk about those that live according to the flesh will not inherit the kingdom of God. That is scary. And I believe that the torment of hell will not be everlasting burnings as much as it will be the regret that we have of not taking heed to God's admonishment. That's what's going to be tormenting about separation from God eternally. Why didn't I listen? He showed me so many times. <clears throat> Jeremiah 2.22 says, Although you wash yourself with lye and use much soap, the stain of your iniquity is always before me, declares the Lord. I say this because we often try to go to our man-made cleaning methods. Right? We, we say, I'm going to do something that's really going to please God. Okay, I know I'm dabbling in this, so I shouldn't be dabbling. So I'm going to crank it up over here. And I'm going to give some more money. And I'm going to do some more good deeds. And I'm going to serve more at church. And I'm going to go to more, listen to more sermons. And I'm going to listen to Christian music every time I'm in the car for at least five minutes. And we make up all these things in our mind because we are trying to ease the conscience. We're trying to put out the fire that God is doing it in our heart. Why doesn't God just let you be? Would a father leave his child as he wanders onto the highway? Would, I, would you let one of, the, one of your children just wander out into a parking lot? I don't know. Sometimes I see in Walmart parking lot, these kids just running, you know, and you, and you just see the top of their head amongst the cars. And I'm just like, oh, my, wow, that's so scary. Where's the parent, you know? And I know sometimes they get off without us knowing. I'm not talking about that. Imagine there's no parent even to be found. That's, God. That's not God. He is going to be faithful to, to, to get you and move you along the right path. He sends us prophets. I don't want to hear that. People? Nah. How, who are they to judge me? Do you ever see their life? You see, once we do move from the, this admonishment, God has no choice but to go a step further. Proverbs 13, 4, he who spares the rod hates his son. It's the most, the most terrifying thing would be if God let you go into your sin and never, ever did anything to stop you. That would be a terrifying thing because that would mean that you're either not one of his children or you are being hated by God. And I don't mean hated because God is a God of love, but I'm talking about Jacob I loved, Esau I hated. That means not one of the people that God is bringing in 
And that's terrifying. But if you're hearing this, you are, do, you do have that opportunity to repent. You do have that opportunity to choose Christ. Sometimes he'll discipline us in the beginning by allowing us to taste the consequences of our sin a little bit. We smell the full brunt of that coming discipline. Maybe you've been living a secret life. You're doing stuff that no one else knows. You're going to places that you know no one else is going to be that's going to know you. You're doing things with the wrong people. And then all of a sudden, someone you know walks in and your heart drops. Oh my, what am I going to say now? And they don't see you. And you go, whew. That's the discipline, could be the discipline of the Lord. You're driving intoxicated. And you've done it a few times. You're in control. Then all of a sudden, the police lights go on behind you. You're like, Lord, please. I'll never do it again. I'll never do it again. And the cop's lights go on and he blows by you to go to another car. Whew. See, God often dangles us over the cliff as a form of discipline to show us where we are headed. Proverbs 5, 13 to 14. I have not listened to the voice of my teachers, nor inclined to my ear, my ear to my instructors. I was almost in utter ruin in the midst of the assembly and congregation. He was almost exposed. His sin was almost brought out. But we still rationalize. We still are persistent in our sin. So God increases the heat. Maybe to one or two or three people now find out and know. Numbers 32, 23, be sure your sin will find you out. Unfortunately, I use as an example the great preacher and teacher and apologist, Robbie Zacharias, who you know is recently passed. He had many warnings, complaints by women who were, who were glossed over these complaints throughout his career, throughout the years. And then his sexual sin became exposed. This is a man that didn't have a congregation. He had millions and millions of people following him. He's a brilliant man, brilliant teacher, brilliant apologist. I watched him decimate the, the people that rejected Christianity for other religions. And all the while, he never, ever listened to the discipline or admonishment from God. And the worst, the worst thing is that he died with this testimony. If you were to pass right now out of this life into the presence of God right now, rejecting his discipline, what would you do? You see, I say that because we are so comfortable in our life. We never think it's going to happen to us. But it comes like that. And then we have no choice. We have no recourse. Hebrews 10.31, it's a terrifying thing to fall in the hands of a living God. Now, like Israel, because God is loving and wants to help us, he eventually turns us over to our oppressors and our enemies. The most vicious oppressor and enemy that you have 
is the full power of your sin being unleashed in your life. The full power of your desires being unleashed. That's how God disciplines us often, often at that, that, that last point, that last bridge, or I should say second to last bridge, he throws you headlong into your sin. Therefore, God gave them over to the lusts of their heart, to impurity, so that their bodies would be dishonored among them. But Pat, that was unbelievers. No, it wasn't. 32, and although they knew the ordinance of God, that those who practice such things are worthy of death, the wages of sin is death, they not only do the same, but they give hearty approval to those who practice it. And then finally, I believe the worst is that he will turn us over to Satan temporarily in this life so that we could be saved in the next. He loves us so much that rather than destroying us and having us being eternally separated from himself, he will turn us over to Satan for the destruction of the flesh so that we will be saved. This is what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 5.5. 5. He's talking about those caught up in sexual sin. I have decided to deliver such a one to Satan for the destruction of his flesh so that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord Jesus. This is serious. This is, a, this is not a, a, sin is not something to play around with. What do we do? Well, the first thing I believe, here's where it starts. Like with Israel, you see here it says in verse 28, but as soon as they had rest, They did it again. They were complacent. Know that complacency leads to evil. Complacency is that first head turned away from Jesus. And then you get comfortable with that and then you start to angle in this way and you get in that position of, you know what? I'm doing pretty good. We have this uncritical satisfaction with our spiritual achievements. It's uncritical. We're just, we're not over it. We're not looking at it. We're, we're happy. We're good. I mean, I'm, I'm doing good. I'm, I'm providing for my family. Um, you know, I'm being, I'm giving, I'm giving my wife what she wants. I'm, my kids are doing well. I'm going to church. I'm plugged in. I can afford a little sin here or there. I know it's wrong, but God knows my heart. I've, I've accepted Christ. I mean, I'm okay. That's not what Jesus says. He says, choose the narrow road for the road is broad that leads to destruction, but the road to life is very, very narrow. When you become complacent, you have to snap yourself out of it, viciously snap yourself out of it before you begin to go backwards. Go to the Lord and ask him to take your surrender. Lord, take my surrender. Make me on fire again for you. Do not turn to the left or to the right. Turn your foot from evil, Proverbs 4, 27. Embrace the admonishment and discipline from God when you get it. Embrace it. Thank the Lord for it. Praise him for it. Know if if he didn't love you, he would not be doing it. Just like you would embrace that saving hand of the surgeon, right? He needs to go in and he needs to take something out that's going to take your life. You don't say, no, get away from me with that sharp object. 
Nope, you say, knock me out, do what you got to do. I want to live. God is doing his fatherly duty. Revelation 3.19, those whom I love, I reprove and discipline. Therefore, be zealous and repent. Not casually repent, be zealous and repent. And there you will see the grace of God. Where sin abounds, grace abounds more. Where grace abounds, God's love abounds. And where his love abounds, discipline abounds. His love and his discipline go hand in hand. Now I want you to beware. Here's another thing to take with you. Satan knows your tendencies to sin. He knows them. Whatever you are most prone to, there's where Satan will be. He is a master of disguises. Whoever, all of us here may have a million different temptations, but Satan knows them all, and he will lead you into the one and thrust you into the one that suits your fleshly desires. So ask the Lord, God, take this secret, hidden, sinful tendency from me, and then ruthlessly make no provision. And when you do this, you see the power of Christ in your life. When you do this, you see the glory of Christ. That cross doesn't look like a thorny, miserable thing anymore. It's something you want to run to and you want to embrace. You see, the people of Israel cried out to God and he did not forsake them. And so we see the blessings of God in the midst of our sin. He's still there to rescue us. He wants to pull you out. And all of this is manifested in the cross of Christ. Look what he did to his son. How much more will he discipline us to follow this Christ who died and spilled his blood for us? He will be faithful to, to do that. So what we have to do is choose to be bound to Christ, not bound to sin. We embrace the cross of dying to ourselves. We embrace the cross of full surrender. We embrace the cross of living a cross-filled life where we are denying the flesh by the Spirit of God. We trust Jesus with all we have. We agree with God that He is the only way and the only source, and He, we owe, he owes us nothing. We owe Him our whole entire lives. And He says when you do that, you will have joy unspeakable. Martin Luther says God loves the runner not the questioner. You see, we have to stop questioning. We know what to do. We are to run to Christ with all of our heart. And so with that said, there was an, another form of discipline that we see in the scriptures, and that's those that partake of the Lord's Supper with the wrong heart. Those that partake. It says... <clears throat> In 1 Corinthians eleven twenty six to 31, and I'm saying this as a, as a transition into our, into our Lord's Supper. And so I want to give you what the scripture says about this. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. It's a gospel proclamation, what we're about to do, a public proclamation of the gospel. So Paul says that's serious. So what does he say here? Therefore... Whoever eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner shall be guilty of the body, excuse me, and blood of the Lord. A man must examine himself, and in doing so, he is to eat of the bread and drink the cup. So whoever eats and drinks um, unworthily, eats and drinks judgment to himself if he doesn't judge 
the body rightly. See, Jesus said for us to be intimate with him. And this is a symbolic act of our intimacy that we desire with Christ. And so when you take in the intimacy of Christ with a defiled conscience, then that is where Paul is saying it's, it doesn't fit. And so the solution is, is to come to Christ with a pure heart right now. Okay, My, I'm not trying to say you better not eat if you sinned yesterday. I'm saying you come to Christ with a clean heart. And this grace that he gives us in the Lord's Supper will strengthen you to be able to live more for him. And again, it's a spiritual act. Christ gave his life for your life. He gave his body to die instead of your body suffering an eternal death. He gave his blood of infinite value instead of your blood that could never pay the debt ever. That's why it's eternal separation. And so for this amazing act on his behalf, pouring out his blood and scourging his body and giving his flesh, we do this in remembrance of him. We look back on his sacrifice and we look forward to the new creation that his death and resurrection 